two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Thank you so much, Rebecca, and welcome to yet another episode of Words and Movies. I'm your co-host, Claude Call. And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. And we're continuing our series called Around the World, where we look at movies from countries other than America. And this episode, we're calling Only Connect, which is the epigraph for the great E.M. Forster novel, Howard's End, and is also sort of the theme of the two movies we are discussing today, which are from Canada from 1994, though it was released in the U.S. in 1995, Exotica, written and directed by Adam Agoyan, and from Turkey from 2007, though released in the U.S. in 2008, The Edge of Heaven, written and directed by Fatih Akin. Both of these movies are what is known, what are known as hyperlink stories, meaning that you've got characters whose connections may not always be clear at first, but then you gradually discover them as the story progresses. Now, that's not true for all hyperlink stories. For example, Steven Soderbergh's movie Traffic, the connections to the characters were pretty clear from the outset. It's just that the way they intersected was a bit of a mystery. But in this case, it's the former, that the connections between the characters become clear as the movie progresses. In addition, both of these movies are told in a non-linear fashion, meaning they have, to quote Godard, a beginning, a middle, and an end, just not always in that order. And finally, according to Claude, both of the synapses have such detail in them that we might as well get to it. So Claude <laughs> is now going to give us the plot description for Exotica. Yeah, sit back. It's going to be a ride. So I'm going to go out of strict uh, sequential order on this one just to keep the storytelling a little more coherent. So if you've seen the film and you know it didn't happen in quite that order, eh, bear with it, okay? But under the opening credits, we have the camera panning across a line of tropical plants, which are sitting in front of a mural of similar plants. Uh, and we're hearing Indian-style Shanai music playing. As the credits end and we get the title, we see that we're in a place of some kind that has a subcontinental jungle theme. From there, we jump to the customs area of an airport in the uh, Toronto area. Thomas, who's played by Don McKellar, is going through the customs checking gate at an airport while being watched by uh, officials from behind a security mirror as one guard starts talking about how you spot a, sm a smuggler. As Thomas exits the airport, rather, a man offers to split the cab fare to get into the city. When the cab stops to drop the man off, instead of cash, he offers Thomas a pair of ballet tickets to an upcoming show, suggesting that if he doesn't want to see the ballet, well, he can always scalp the tickets. The man goes into a club called Exotica, but we're going to come back to that in a minute. When Thomas arrives at his home, we see he has indeed been smuggling something. He has some containers containing eggs taped to his stomach, and he's successfully gotten them through customs. He places them into a waiting incubator. Now, Exotica. 
It's the room that we saw during the credits. Uh, Exotica is a dance club. It's the type where women dance for men. They dance on stage, and then they're available to dance at the tables for only $5. There is a disc jockey named Eric who plays uh, subcontinental music with a techno beat behind it, while simultaneously narrating backstories for the dancers. And it's in this scene we are introduced to Christina, who's played by Mia Kirshner, performing her naughty schoolgirl performance for Francis, who's played by Bruce Greenwood. Uh, Eric, who who's, by the way, is played by Elias Coteus, uh, watches them, and we're a little curious about his motives until we learn that he has a past history with Christina. We have a couple of flashback scenes throughout the film involving lines of people searching a field for a missing person, and this is where Eric and Christina first met and became friends. Eric says he doesn't know the missing person, but Christina mentions that she's the girl's babysitter. So now we know what's up between Eric and Christina, or do we? In subsequent scenes, we see Francis at the club and paying for Christina to come to his table, but she's not just dancing for him. They're having some very intense, quiet conversations that involve him asking why anyone would hurt her and her saying that he's there so she can't be hurt. And she occasionally rests her head on his shoulder and she sighs heavily. We don't hear that every time, but you get the impression that it's a kind of scripted ritual for them. And every time afterwards, Francis goes into the restroom and he just holds up in a stall. He doesn't appear to use it for anything other than to just stand there quietly. Uh, we also learn that the relationship between Eric and Christina went sour largely because Eric made a deal with club owner Zoe, who's played by Arsene uh, Kanjian, to allow her to have his child. We get a nighttime scene where Francis is in his car with a young blonde girl named Tracy, who's played by Sarah Polly. He laments that they don't converse in the car anymore, and at first we're led to believe that he's her father and he's taking her home to his ex-wife, but then as she gets out of the car, he tells her, give my regards to your dad. Thomas takes the tickets to the theater and he wanders around out front and it turns out that there does indeed seem to be a bit of a demand for scalping t ballet tickets in Toronto. Who knew? Uh, Thomas spots a man who is looking for one ticket. We next see Thomas in the audience with the man. Uh, the ballet they're watching is Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet and it's Act 1, Scene 2 during the Dance of the Nights. And I'm mentioning all that because I think it's a little bit more important to the story than you might originally think. And I do expect to talk about it later. Anyway, every now and again, Thomas glances at his audience partner and once in a while the man glances back. After the show, Thomas gives the man his money back, reasoning that he was given the tickets for nothing so he shouldn't have to take money for it. The man offers to thank him by going to get a drink somewhere, but Thomas nervously declines. The next day, Francis arrives at the exotic pet shop that Thomas runs to examine his accounting books. It turns out Francis's day job is as an auditor for the Canada Revenue Agency. That's their version of the uh, IRS. Thomas takes him to the back office and shows him where the records are. They're a bit of a mess, so Francis is in for some work. And at one point, his pen runs out of ink, and while looking through the desk for another one, he spots a gun in one drawer. When he questions Thomas about it, Thomas's explanation is, well, his father kept the gun when he ran the business. Francis says he'll have to come back in a few days to finish the job. Francis goes to uh, Tracy's apartment to pick her up, and while he's waiting, he stands on the balcony with her father, Harold, who has a parrot on his shoulder. Harold, by the way, is played by Victor Garber. Francis asks Harold a few questions about the parrot's ability to talk, and Harold says, well, it used to, but it apparently it lost interest. It's clear that there's some tension between them. He takes Tracy to his home, telling her that the piano's been retuned and it sounds beautiful. Tracy plays the piano a little bit, and Francis says he won't be too late that evening. She practices piano and then flute, 
and we see that there are photos of a woman and a young girl all over the place, neither of whom we've seen in the film so far. Francis returns to Exotica to have Christina dance for him. When he goes into the restroom this time, Eric goes in and talks to him through the stall door, saying he's seen Francis in there frequently and asking about his relationship with Christina. Francis doesn't recognize Eric's voice, perhaps because it's not amplified, and Eric suggests that Francis touch Christina, and Francis points out that that's against the rules. Eric tells him, go ahead, because what could happen? Now, we all know what happens. You touch the girls, you get a gentle first warning. Uh, uh, I've heard. Uh, when Francis returns to his seat, Christina begins dancing for him. Uh, Francis watches her for several seconds and then impulsively places his hand on her belly. The two of them just stare at one another for a couple of seconds, but then Eric comes storming into the space to grab Francis and throw him out of the club. Christina is upset. In fact, she's kind of furious and goes to Zoe to complain. Zoe's sympathetic. She knows that Francis and Christina have a special arrangement and that it's a first offense, but she basically backs Eric up. We see Tracy in the car with Francis again. She asks him about the apparent tension with her father and asking whether or not they're friends. She notes that she doesn't like the way Harold gets when he's around. Francis comes up with a plausible explanation for the way adults behave. Thomas procures a, a pair of tickets to the ballet and again finds himself trolling the scalpers up front, looking for another person to sit with. He finds someone, but he turns out to be one of the customs officers who was watching him at the airport. He doesn't have a name in this film, but he's portrayed by Calvin Green. Now, Thomas, he doesn't know what the guy does because of the one-way glass in the airport, so it's not like he recognizes him. But again, we see Thomas and the customs agent watching the show, this time from a balcony box. And again, it's Act 1, Scene 2 of Romeo and Juliet. After the show, Thomas again offers to give back the ticket money, this time lying about having been given the tickets. But this time, they wind up going to Thomas's apartment together. During some getting-to-know-you chat, Thomas explains the incubator and says that the eggs are those of the hyacinth macaw, and they come from very far away. The two spend the night together, and the next morning, Thomas wakes up alone when his phone rings and the answering machine picks up. It's the customs officer confessing that he took the eggs. Well, it turns out that Francis is part of a larger investigation to see where Thomas has untaxed income coming into his business. In short, they knew he was up to something, and Francis was more or less the man being sent in to collect the last bits of evidence. He blackmails Thomas into wearing a wire into the club to engage Christina because he can't get in to find out what happened. He thinks he was set up, but he can't figure out why. Feeling cornered, Thomas agrees. Now, as the announcer for the performers, Eric has always had a little bit of a different approach to Christina's dances, but we can see that his announcements in general are getting a little bit darker in nature. Thomas enters the club and he gets Christina to come to his table. She dances for him for a bit, and then he begins asking her questions, posing as a psychologist in town for a convention. She suggests that there's a mutual dependency here, but she also starts to tell Francis's story. Some years ago, his daughter was killed. He was the prime suspect, and his life was complete hell for a while, but then they found the killer, and he was set free. But he's still haunted by the event, and remember, Francis is listening to this whole exchange from his car. Christina begins crying as she starts to explain their relationship. Eric calls Christina to the stage, even though she, he knows she's with a client, and that irritates her. When she leaves, Thomas goes into the restroom, and again, Eric follows him inside. Once again, Eric begins engaging him through the stall door, but this time, Eric is more wistful. He confesses that he used to be Christina's lover, and he envies the relationship that Thomas seems to have with her after just a few minutes. But then he turns to talking about Francis without naming him, suggesting that Francis spends lots of time with her, but doesn't seem to really know her. 
Francis, having heard everything, tries to enter the club, but he's blocked by the doorman. He convinces them to let him speak with Zoe. He tells Zoe that he was told to touch Christina, but he doesn't know why or by whom. Francis says he touched Christina to make sure she wouldn't react in kind, but this confuses Zoe, and she finally tells him, look, Exotica is a place for entertainment and not therapy, and she offers him a list of other places he can go. Christina returns to the table with Thomas. Thomas tells her that he met a man in the washroom who said he was once her lover. Zoe comes by and interrupts them, telling Christina she has to leave. Thomas pays her for her time, despite her protestations. We see Tracy in the car with Francis again. She tells him that she shouldn't babysit for him anymore because there's no baby to watch. Francis understands and he gives her some money for her time and thanks her for her patience before letting her go. Christina has put some of the pieces together by now, and she's complaining to Zoe about Eric's behavior. Eric admits he told Francis to touch her. He says that when he saw them together, he could see that she soothed him, but it soothed Eric too. Christina explodes with anger, shouting and striking out at him. Next morning, Francis goes to the pet shop. Thomas asks where he went last night, and he says only he had to leave. Thomas asks Francis whether Christina knew about his daughter. Instead of answering directly, he begins talking about how the police told him that his wife and his brother Harold had been having an affair for years, and that it was possible that his daughter wasn't his daughter after all, so that possibility made him a suspect somehow. Then he notes that his wife was killed in an automobile accident a few months later, and Harold, who obviously survived, was in the car at the time. Francis retrieves the gun from the desk, and he begins to concoct a plan for killing Eric for setting him up. Thomas is going to go back to the club and touch Christina, and when Eric throws him out, Francis is going to be waiting there, and he's going to shoot him right out in front of the club. Thomas again is feeling trapped because of his illegal activity and offers to help. That night at the club, Zoe is announcing the dancers and playing the music, but of course, she's not doing all the backstory stuff we were hearing out of Eric. As Leonard Cohen's Everybody Knows plays over the speakers, Christina begins her dance, but it looks like she's not doing much more than going through the motions. Thomas comes into the club while Francis walks around outside with the gun in his hand. He hears a noise from behind him and turns around to see Eric walking toward him. We cut back and forth between this and Christina dancing for Thomas. At one point, Thomas puts his hand on her thigh, but instead of getting kicked out, she silently takes his hand off and then resumes dancing. Eric tells Francis not to be afraid. He knows everything about Francis because it turns out that Eric was the one who found his daughter's body, and it's only then we realize that the people searching in that field were looking for Francis's daughter. The two men embrace. We have a flashback where Francis's family is intact when there's a knock at the door, and it's a teenage Christina there to babysit for the daughter. Later, Francis is driving Christina home, and he notices that she's not really following the conversation they're having. When he asks her about it, she tells him about her troubled family situation. Francis reassures her that she can always confide in him, and he watches, and we get a long point of view shot as Christina walks up the sidewalk and into her house, cut to credits as she goes inside. So... This is the second film of Adam O'Goyans that we've talked about on the show. The first one, way, 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 way back many episodes ago, was Sweet Hereafter. And I mentioned when we talked about that one that I was not initially a fan of, of O'Goyans films. 
when I first moved up to Canada in 1990, that's when I first heard about the Toronto Film Festival. And in 1991, The Adjuster, which was the film, the feature-length film of Goins that came out before Exotica, played at the festival and it won Best Canadian Feature at the festival there. This, by the way, is before the Toronto Film Festival became known as being the next stop for Oscar potential movies. Even though that year the Fisher King won the Audience Award, it did not gain a lot of momentum from winning that. But anyway, out of curiosity, I decided to check the adjuster out. And at the time I saw it, I was 23 years old. And I hated it. I thought it was an exercise in intellectual wankery, (laughs) to be quite honest. Although I don't know if I would have been able to form the term, that term at the time. I watched it again recently for the first time since then to see if it played any better. I still don't like it. But I can sort of see what Agoyan was doing. And then after that, he made a movie called Calendar, which he himself is also in, along with Arsene Kanjian, who is, is his real-life wife, by the way. Um, they play basically themselves as he shoots a documentary on her and him visiting Armenia, Ogoyan is part Armenian. And although that one is better, I still felt like it was more of an exercise than anything else. And that also goes for a segment that he shot for an anthology film called Montreal Pouvoir, which is very similar to a French anthology film from the 60s called Paris Pouvoir, where you had six different Canadian directors direct a short film for this anthology, including Agoyan, Patricia Razima, I believe, and Denny Arcand, among the other ones. And Agoyan's, again, I felt was more of an exercise than anything else. Exotica was the first movie of Agoyans that I saw, and I didn't watch it in theaters, I watched it on cassette, and only because both Siskel and Ebert gave it a rave review and put it on their respective top ten lists in 1995, but it was the first Agoyan movie that I saw that I felt any kind of human connection with and that there was a human connection in the story itself. And even though there were parts of the movie that I thought were flawed, which I am going to get to in a moment, overall, I was quite moved at the end. And I didn't think that would be possible at an Agoyan film up to that point. <laughs> How about you, Claude? Were you moved at the end? I was, actually. I, I, was, I was moved, and at the same time, I was a little bit kind of left wanting in the sense that, yeah, yeah, I, I really felt like 
we needed just a little bit more ending to this film. And, and that might be one of the flaws you were talking about. So I don't want to get too far ahead of you on this one. Actually, I didn't have that problem. Okay. But, you know, I thought the ending was just right as it was unlocking what drew the two of them together in the first place. Mm -hmm. That, you know, this wasn't just a matter of, oh, Christina was one of was there when Francis's daughter was found. And now that's that's part of uh, Francis's guilt fetish that she's actually a family friend. Mm -hmm. And so they knew each other. And so that to me helped snap everything into place, especially after I saw it the second time. Well, I mean, there, there you, you, and this is the thing, like that synopsis I just read, like, the major bulk of it was like the last 20 minutes of the film because there's just so many pieces suddenly falling into place that explain everybody's behavior, you know, really, because we don't know that at all that there's a connection between Eric and, and, and Francis. I mean, it's tenuous, but it's there. Okay. Because he was the one who literally found the body. Um, we don't know. I mean, we, we don't know that there's any connection at all between Christina and Francis, except for that one little breadcrumb that she drops at the very beginning about being the babysitter for the missing person. But we still don't really know anything about the missing person themselves. And, and you know, again, how did you, how did, God, like, how did you not realize that the person they're searching for was, you know, the daughter? It's just, you know, one of those things you get so sucked into the story, you kind of forget about the reason those people are out there and who they could possibly be looking for so that all these connections suddenly come in together and get explained cool and and i just i think i just need a little bit of okay what happens now i mean that's the point no one is gonna know yeah you know life goes on somehow but you know we're left it's left to us to figure out what's gonna happen now mm -hmm. so i didn't have a problem with that uh let's begin then with what I did have a problem with, and that is Don McKellar. Hmm. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with McKellar's work. In addition to being an actor, he's also a writer, and he co-wrote a couple of movies with director Francois Girard that I find very interesting. 32 short films about Glenn Gould, which is exactly what the title says. You yeah. know, it takes Glenn Gould's um, recordings of box variations and makes a short film set to each of them. And then another hyperlink movie, although this one is more like Intolerance in that it's an historical hyperlink, uh, The Red Violin, mm -hmm. which is showing how a violin passes from one person's hands, a valuable violin passes from one person's hands to another. And this is one of the very few quote-unquote art house movies that Samuel L. Jackson has ever appeared in. Mm -hmm. And he plays a violin dealer. And both of those movies are well worth checking out, by the way. And he also wrote and directed um, a movie about 
the coming apocalypse or a coming apocalypse called Last Night, although this is more a existential movie than a zombies running through the street movie type of thing. And while I didn't think it quite worked, it certainly was interesting. So again, nothing to complain about him as a writer. As an actor, though, I find him rather flat. Um, There's a scene when Francis is confronting um, Thomas in his exotic pet shop And he says to him, you seem rather flustered. And I wanted to yell out at the screen, how can you tell? (laughs) So so I think his acting is flat. But also, while the three people at the core of the story, even though obviously they're all part of the same plot construct, they're also real human people that I felt that could connect with. And I felt that way as well about a few of the supporting characters, such as Zoe and um, Tracy and Harold. But Thomas, you know, he never advanced to me past the idea of, okay, Francis needs someone to go in the club for him so that he can figure out why the hell he was kicked out. So that, to me, is somewhat of a flaw in the movie. Yeah, he's he's kind of lacking in affect in some areas where he shouldn't necessarily be. You know, uh, as you say, like the scenes where he's supposed to be nervous, he's, it's almost like we've got this, this guy with autism going on where he just doesn't seem to quite recognize, you know, that there's trouble a brewing or that there's something, you know, going on one way or another. He, yeah, you're right. He doesn't have a huge range of emotion there. And there are some areas where that actually kind of works because, you know, if he's, when he's in customs, he's supposed to be the guy, you know, more or less playing it cool and doesn't realize he's under surveillance the entire time. And, you know, other times where it doesn't work, where he should be a little bit more nervous. Look, I think he should be nervous looking when he is out there, you know, trolling for lovers in front of the ballet. And he's not. Right. Now, let's talk about the strip club for a moment. Now, Goyan has said that he was inspired to make this movie for several, for three reasons. One, he was taken to a lesbian dance club where women uh, performed as men on stage. And then uh, another one, which also, another thing that inspired him, which also he used for his inspiration for the sweet hereafter, even though that is explicitly in the novel that the movie was based on. He realized when he was a teenager that a friend of his was trapped in an an incestuous relationship. And the third inspiration for the movie was when a tax auditor from Revenue Canada suggested to him that he was being cheated by a business partner, and that turned Hmm. out not to be true. 
So all of that um, may give him inspiration to write the movie. And that may, part of that may explain why Exotica, the club itself, is a little different than you might think. Now, we talked in, when we talked about Ruby in Paradise about how strip clubs are normally used in movies as titillation and opportunities for voyeurism. And Exotica takes that idea and turns it perpendicular. Um, you've got the jungle theme of the production design. And the production design, by the way, was done by Linda Del Rosario and Richard Paris. And they also did the art direction. You've got the outfits of the people who are dancing as well as some of the people who are in the club. They're not just a suit and tie crowd. I mean, they are dressed fashionably, yeah. but they do look a little... They don't re really look like businessmen, except for Francis, even though a lot of them probably are. And Linda Muir, by the way, did the costumes. And then just the whole air of the club seems a lot more exotic than most strip clubs, so I've heard, <laughs> are like. I mean, and I, yes, exotic is uh, a regrettable pun in this case. But anyway, it just makes the whole place seem otherworldly in a way. And I guess that helps make the heightened relationship between Eric, Francis, and Christina be even more meaningful and more profound, that it's not just taking place in your ordinary bar or club, that it's taking place in something in more heightened circumstances. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because, you know, this is we and, and I've talked about this before, like that whole difference between sexy nudity and unsexy nudity. And this is definitely like an unsexy nudity kind of place, you know, despite the fact that it's a strip club. And, and, and I'm and I'm thinking in terms of all of the women in the club are mostly nude. Um you know, they, they are either topless and, you know, just wearing panties on the bottom or they're completely nude with the exception of like harness type things or just, you know, straps here and there just enough to prevent them from being considered completely nude. Even though, like, if you look, you will be like, I can see everything, you know, and at the same time, you never really get that, you know, male gaze kind of thing. These women are wallpaper in this story really and, you know once in a while you'll i mean the, it's not like they're all out of focus or anything like that some of them are very clearly seen but it doesn't matter it's like it's just it's just another fixture in the room and the one exception to that is christina who you know she gets out on the stage she's basically fully dressed i mean she's wearing you know the naughty schoolgirl kind of thing that you that you typically think of when you when you hear about that sort of costume with you know the white um 
Oxford style shirt and the plaid skirt and the, you know, white panties underneath and that, that's sort of, and I, I think she had long socks on too. And, um, but, and, and while she dances, she, the, the clothes don't come off while she's dancing for Francis, the clothes never come off. And in fact, this is kind of interesting because I, I actually did like a second watch just to double check. And when she is dancing for Francis, okay, for the most part, she'll open up her shirt and you can see clearly that there's nothing underneath, but she never actually reveals her breasts. It doesn't happen until the scene where he touches her, okay, and you accidentally get, you know, it's like almost like a nip slip, what they call, you know, it is like you get this glimpse of her and also you see it a little bit more, but basically that's where it starts. It's like she has like physically and conceptually bared herself to Francis and then to Thomas, okay, because you can see it again with Thomas. But then again, she gets out on that stage again. Once again, fully dressed, the clothes don't come off. And, and, and it's just, I, I think it's one of those like subtle little symbols that that we're getting uh, that, you know, filmmakers like to put in and we don't necessarily make a point of picking up and saying, hey, look at that there. But that's exactly what happened here. I was like, wow, why is she the only one dressed like this? And then when you finally actually do, you know, quote unquote, see something, it's in a moment of heightened emotional intensity and it kind of makes sense in in retrospect right and one last thing that helps contribute to the heightened nature of the club and that's michael dannett well two things two pieces of music uh two music things mm -hmm. uh one is michael dannett's score yeah um, it is again, regrettable pun exotic. There is a real Indian feel to it. Yes. Giving you this. And of course, I mean the country India, not native American feel. And it gives you this sort of otherworldly, uh, feel throughout the movie. And it's not just used in the strip club, there's also that uh, piece of music that plays in the flashback scenes when Eric and Christina are searching for Francis's daughter, though we don't know that yet, and talking to each other and getting to know each other. You know, it's a very subtle piece of foreshadowing mm -hmm. that's done with the music to let you know that whatever is happening here is not going to end well. Yeah. And speaking of that, just real quick before I get to the other part of music that I want to talk about, we should also praise the cinematography of Paul Sorosi, who mm -hmm. is the director of photography on this movie. Um, he's worked with a lot of di directors, both Canadian directors. He also shot The Sweet Hereafter and several other Ogoyan movies. And he also has worked for Neil Jordan on his TV show, The Borgias, which I never saw, but which is supposed to be very good. And he also shot movies for another Canadian director, 
Um, Denny Arcant, who I mentioned before, he shot what I think is his most underrated movie, uh, Love and the Human Remains, Arcans, that is. And like a cinematographer we've talked quite a few times about on this show, Gordon Willis, he uses contrasts mm-hmm. very, very well because the flashback scenes are all very well lit when they're outside talking. Um, it's a sunny day and it's afternoon and they're walking through and yet at the nighttime scenes, not just in the club, but also out in the street in the car and things like that are shot very darkly. So, and the flashback scene at the very end is also brightly lit and it may seem like an obvious choice of having bright lights equal happiness and darkness equal despair and melancholy, but it works here. Yeah, but there's a little more to it than that, because he doesn't light things monolithically in the sense that, you know, all the outside stuff is bright and all the inside stuff is dark. There's also a little bit more to it in that uh, what I've noticed is like when he is, when, when Francis is at Tracy's place, okay, whether it's night or day, the way it's lit during the day, it's almost washed out a little bit. It's it's very, very bright and stark looking. And at night, it's very, very dark and scary looking. And so you actually get like a little bit of a sense of almost like danger or menace, regardless of the time of day that he is there, just by the way it looks. And and so he's, he's really taking his time uh, to to give you, you know, some cues to what's what's in some of the characters state of mind in in these cases like you know what's what's really happening and so you know he goes and he picks up tracy so that she can babysit for nobody you know but you know it's it's he doesn't have a good view of this place and of course it's because of you know the the relationship that he has with his with his brother-in-law so it kind of makes sense in that respect right and now let's get back to the other music uh, related part of the movie that is very important. You're going to talk about um, the Romeo and Juliet ballet. I'm going to talk about the fact that while you mentioned that everybody knows plays during Christina's last dance in front of Thomas when he tries to touch her, in point of fact, that is the song that Eric plays for Christina every time that she does a dance. Well, yeah. And um, this is not the first movie that has used that song effectively or as a leitmotif in uh, Pump Up the Volume, um, where Christian Slater is playing a um, radio uh, talk show host, a pirate radio talk show host. That's the song that he, in high school, by the way, that's the song he uses to introduce himself every time that he goes on the air. But it's used especially effectively here. Now, if you're not familiar with the song, it is, as you might guess from the title, a very cynical song. Yeah. You know, the first verse is everybody knows 
um, says, among other things, everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. So the idea that it would be used as a song for a young woman uh, to to dance to, of course, she doesn't strip to it, would seem very odd, even though it's got a very repetitive beat to it, Mm -hmm. which does make it ideal. But at the same time, it sort of does fit the uh, movie, even with uh, lines like, um, there's something in there about, um, well, while I'm looking up the lyrics to it, you can uh, talk about why you think uh, Romeo and the Romeo and Juliet ballet by Prokofiev ties in with the movie. Well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna st- stick with this song for just a moment. Uh, but to to note that you know, again, it's like one of those typical things. Like you know, dancers like to have you know like their music, their walk on music, so that it makes sense that the same tune is being played when when the dancer comes out because you know it's part of their routine, but. I think the fact is that the second time you see it and she's dancing after everything is starting to come down and the way and it just has a little bit more impact. But Oh, and I found the lyric I was looking for, which okay. is everybody knows that you've been discreet, but there were yeah. so many people you just had to meet without your clothes. Right, right, right. But as which far- I don't know if we ever hear in the movie, but anyway that's because i don't know remember how far we get each time with the song but nonetheless that is a pretty uh, neat tie in there so yeah. romeo and juliet so Kofiev. romeo and juliet it was one of those things i got a little bit you know curious because we knew that it was romeo and juliet because you could see it on the building behind them and and so you know why i thought was it necessary for us to come in at the same part of the of the of the ballet you know and is it just because well this is the music that that people recognize well it can't be that because there are several pieces within romeo and juliet that everybody kind of knows so i went and i you know looked i was like what's happening in the ballet at this point you know what and and act one scene two uh, is, is basically takes place at, at juliet's house and the the piece itself is called the dance of the knights and so there are a lot of men on stage dancing so you know kind of uh, like a subtle underline to the to the homosexuality thing that's going on there where he's there to pick up men but the other thing is that basically at the end of that scene um You've you've basically got um, noblemen who are interested in marrying Juliet, specifically Paris. Um, but basically, once everybody leaves, Juliet's nurse has to explain to Juliet, "Well, your childhood is over." And I think that's an important part of it is that you know there are a lot of childhoods that ended in this film. You know that that we see at one point or another. You know. Um, Francis's daughter, her name's Lisa, by the way. Uh, so Lisa dies, and her so her childhood has ended that way. And Christina had this kind of bad childhood, and that didn't end well because now she's this dancer. And so, and and even Tracy, you know, her childhood ended in a slightly different way because of you know the 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 affair that that her her father had with um with her with her aunt, frankly, and and so and then getting into the accident and he's wheelchair bound. We don't really see that at first, but in a later scene, we do realize that. Um, 
And so her childhood is changed forever because of this, this happening and Tracy being kind of asked to come in and do the babysitting, even though there's no baby to sit. So she's a sort of therapeutic stand in for whatever's going on. And they're, they're basically, there are a lot of childhoods ending throughout this film. And I, so I, I thought it wound up being kind of an apt piece to use. Yes. I have to admit, I am not a ballet connoisseur by any means. Oh, no, so no, I, but I, I just started looking really, it up to find out what I was going I didn't really on. pick up on any of that, but I'm sure Agoyan did, which explains why he used it. Now, let's talk about the actors here. Yeah. We mentioned uh, uh, we mentioned with Sweet Hereafter that Ogoyan does have, or did anyway, I have gone back to not being a fan of his movies anymore <laughs> after his uh, movie Chloe. But anyway, uh, at one point he did have a stock company of actors, including Kanjian, who I mentioned is his real life wife and who, by the way, was actually pregnant Yeah. Uh, when the movie was being made, that wasn't a, um, a fat suit or anything like that. That's how she looked like at the time. But Elias Kateas mm-hmm. was played the title character in the adjuster. And he went on to appear in Ararat, which is the last Agoyan movie I really liked. Um, David Hemblin, who plays the head customs officer, who you see talking at the beginning, telling his subordinate what the job is really like. And by the way, Agoyan is fascinated by that job, as he said in interviews, and Hmm. customs inspectors have appeared in quite a few of his movies, including his segment for Montreal Pouvoir and also Ararat. Um, David Hemblin, who most people would probably remember best as the voice of Magneto in the animated X-Men series that aired on Fox in the 90s. Uh, He was also in The Adjuster, and he's also in The Sweet Hereafter. Right. And Don McCauley. Yes, I was getting to her. She was in um, the in the suite hereafter as well. And Bruce Greenwood is also in the suite hereafter. And um, Don McKellar was in the adjuster. And there's one person who was in all, who was in both the adjuster and the segment of Montreal Pouvoir and the Sweet Hereafter, who is also in this movie. Although if you blink, you'll miss him. As one of the club patrons, you uh, at one point in the movie, you can clearly see sitting down at the table, Maury Shaken. Yes. Who American audiences might best know as one of the two computer hackers Matthew Broderick consults in War Games and also the guy who claimed that his grits only cooked for five minutes in My Cousin Vinny. But anyway, so Greenwood, this was his first movie with the Goyne up to that time. He was mostly known for TV, um, St. Elsewhere 
um, which he was on for a couple of seasons, and the uh, evening soap Knott's Landing. And he met Agoyan at a bar, and the two of them hit it off. And so Agoyan cast him in this movie. And he's very effective at playing uh, this state of grief throughout the movie without making it seem repetitive at all. And you also get that sense of anger that courses through when he finds, when he gets kicked out of the club. And he finds out that he was deliberately set up. And he plays that very well also. Mm -hmm. And Kateus, who I first encountered as the guy who first is warring with Eric Stoltz, but but then becomes his friend in some kind of wonderful, um, he also speaks in a sort of affected tone at first when he's doing the introductions to the dancers, especially Christina. But then you gradually realize there's a lot more going on underneath what he's saying. You know, you can feel the bitterness coming out of him when he's talking about, when he's introducing Christina. And she even complains about it to Zoe at one point. And he's very good. And also in the flashback scenes, you know, when he's completely unformed and just an, just supposed to come off as this regular guy. And then when he finally has that confrontation with Francis at the end, you know, both actors play that well. But and I'm sorry, you were going to say something. No, go ahead. I I, I wasn't going to do much more and agree with you. So Okay. Uh, the real surprise for me was Mia Kirshner. Uh, although she had done some TV work for a few years before this, this was her only her third movie. Mm-hmm. And yet she is remarkably assured in this role. You know, she plays both the outward life of the exotic dancer, you know, keeping the wall between herself and the customers. And yet you also sense the inner turmoil that's going on, whether she's dancing with Francis and they're going through the ritual that they go through every night or in her arguments with Eric or Zoe or both of them, or even that time when she hugs Zoe um, at one point in the movie when they're together. And when she's explaining to Thomas uh, what her history with Francis is, at first uh, kind of elliptically, but then she becomes more forthcoming to him you know all of that you'd never know that this was her only third movie because she carries it with the poise of a veteran yeah you're right about that and and in fact it, it she actually gave me like a little bit of a like a jennifer Connolly vibe like when we talked about labyrinth a few right. episodes ago it was this it was the same kind of thing and it's not that like every time I see Mia Kirshner, I say, uh, well, she's just like, you know, Jennifer Connelly knockoff because she's not. But no. it w- but it was the same kind of thing 
going on where yeah, well yeah that like you know for somebody who's kind of early in their career you're right that poise is is actually a pretty good word for it yeah all right okay do you have anything else that you want to add before we wrap this up uh no i don't think so we've pretty much exhausted this one for me all right so immediately after this we have part two with the edge of heaven that is coming up right away in your podcast feed so stick around <laughs>